0: So here we are. uh, We've got two weeks left in this series we're doing called The Greatest Chapter, looking at Romans 8. Excited to be digging in. I wanted to share some information with you this week. You're going to think that this is weird, but we'll get there. Okay, we'll get there. I had my annual physical this last week. And if you can tell, i got a little bit of a cold, so I don't think the doctor did his job. But... uh, (laughs) He was so polite to me. You ever been in a physical where he's telling you all the things that you're doing wrong, but he's so polite about it? He's like, I see that you were 40 pounds lighter the last time that you came to see me. (laughs) And you're just like, all right, I'm fat. Thanks for bringing that up. I appreciate that. And he's kind of telling you, "You know, do you you diet and do you exercise? What do you do? So he was very polite about it, but I walked out there kind of feeling a little sad about my life and a lot of things that I needed to change. Uh, But of course, I left with this kind of plan to be healthier. What, what do I need to change my diet? What do I need to uh, fix? Uh, he kind of advised me on things that I can eat, you know, and it's always, the, it's always the, like, the really happy foods that he takes away, like no dairy, no ice cream, no, no sugar. All right, I'll just be sad then, shall I? So I'll just do that. Um, so he's telling me about that, he's talking about workouts. But I, I always really like the miracle plans, right? Like, have you ever seen those miracle plans where they say, if you take this pill or if you go on this specific diet, you're gonna lose like 100 pounds in a month and it's gonna be great and uh, it's gonna be fantastic. And I'm like, yes, I believe you because I wanna do that. Uh, Janine gets so mad at me because I'm the guy who, you know, you know those ab belts that they sell online where it's like, it's like a workout without doing workout? You put this on, it like electrocute your abs, And I think like, yeah, that's the kind of workout. I mean, I'll just sit there and be electrocuted. I don't have to get on a bike and ride or anything. Um, So I love those plans. But unfortunately, the the best plans, the plans that actually work and give you long-term impact, they're more comprehensive than that. They take a little bit more, right? Like it's something that's involved. There's hard things in them. There's things that you're not going to want to do in them. Uh, And if we're honest, that's a little bit like God's plan for our life, isn't it? I told you we would get that. See, God has a plan for our life. We always talk about this. We say, well, what's God's plan for our life? God does have a plan for our life, but it's, it, it looks a lot different than what we like to think it does. It's, it's far more comprehensive. It's far more involved than we want it to be. There's hard things in it. There's challenging things in it. There's things that we're not gonna wanna do, but it is good for you, and God's plan for your life is one that is gonna leave a lasting impact. The question is, do we wanna know what it is? We really want to know what it is. When I ask you about what kind of plan do you think God has for your life, I'm sure there's a lot of things that pop into your head, what kind of career, what kind of relationships, a lot of things that are kind of out there. But what if I told you that God's plan was a lot more about what's going on in here than what's going on out here? It's not so much about the places you go and the things that you achieve, it's it's what happens inside of your own heart and mind. We're going to talk today in Romans 8 about God's plan, and it's this reminder that Paul's going to give us about what God really intends for us, what he really wants for us, what he wants to do in our lives and our hearts, the work that he's doing from ages past all the way through to the end of time, and very present here in this moment with us today. Now, just to kind of remind you... Uh, We've been reading Romans 8, which is is, uh, titled by many the greatest chapter. It's this incredible chapter. So many people have memorized it. We quote verses from it all the time. It's going to be a very well-quoted verse in today's passage. But sometimes I think, and I think we've kind of talked about this the whole series, we kind of forget the greater context of where this comes from and and why do the people in Rome have this letter. So this was written to a, a church that was very young, very early. Uh, and Rome wants to kind of give these Christians the lowdown on this is what the Christian life is. This is what it's really all about. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. He wants to help them understand that. And so we want to kind of wrestle through that. And it's got, it's got some of these really sweeping theological statements, these huge ideas that can be intimidating. But the truth is that Romans 8 is one of the most practical chapters in all of the Bible. It kind of gives us these handrails to walk through life and walk through challenging things. And in the passage we just read last week, we kind of finish in this part where Paul is talking about the suffering of the world. So again, it's kind of very timely for us. But he's, he's talking about the groaning that's going on in the world, and now he's going to kind of transition and say, and "There's a groaning that's going on in the world around us. All creation is groaning for God to come and fix it, to do something about it. But there's also a groaning happening inside of us that is God's work." So we're going to read that and, and kind of pick up God's encouragement for us in how do we live in this groaning world. Uh, So let me read today's passage. This is Romans 8, 26 through 30. Paul writes this. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. So I want to talk about three things this morning together. I want to talk first about the grace of God's Spirit, the work of redemption, and the comfort of his sovereignty. There's going to be a lot in there, so we'll try and hold it all together. So let's talk about the grace of his spirit, the grace of his spirit. Now, you guys, have you guys ever been watching uh, a TV show or a sports game uh, where you have a moment of collective pain? Uh, and here's what I mean by that. Like maybe you're watching a football game, someone gets tackled, and everyone in the room with you, even though you're not there and it didn't happen to you, everyone just goes, ooh, you kind of feel it, Right? There's a lot of moments in life where we kind of have this collective pain, right? I want to read a few examples and, and kind of give me an amen if you can feel this. Just, just by describing the episode, you can feel the pain of it. Banging your toe on the side of the table, right? Yes? Does, it, does anybody else kind of feel like you've been stabbed in the chest when that happens? I don't know why it's so painful. Uh, when you stand on a piece of Lego, right? Somehow people who don't even have kids know what this feels like. Uh, when you miss a step on the stairs, uh, this is one that I hate. When you open a cupboard in the kitchen or the bathroom or something and you dip down and then you come back up and it whacks you right there. Oh! And when you bald, there's no cushion. It's horrible. Uh, when you're doing uh, some DIY and you hit your finger with the hammer, right? You see someone do that and you can feel it, right? Uh, when you bite your tongue, right? When you're eating some good food and you bite your tongue, When you have a brain freeze, yeah? Anybody else with me on the brain freezes? I I don't believe that damage isn't been done to the brain (laughs) from those. It's it's mind numbingly painful. Uh, So, listen, we could go on, we could talk about all these things, but all of us know that there are these moments in life where we can kind of have a shared collective pain over what you see around you, right? You don't have to be there, you don't have to feel it. Well, What Paul is going to tell us, he's going to tell us that the Holy Spirit is like that, that he groans with us for the pains that we feel. He sees them, he knows about them, and the Spirit in our spirit kind of groans for the collective pain in our world. This is what he says. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this first thing that Paul tells us about this groaning world that we live in is that we have an advocate, we have a comforter who is with us, the spirit of God to help us in our weakness. And this, this word that he uses, this spirit who helps, this word helps, it's the same word that in Greek is used for when uh, in the story of Mary and Martha, Mary, uh, Martha says, will, will you tell my sister to help me? So the way I want you to envision the kind of help that Paul's talking about is someone who carries burdens with you, someone who comes and is literally involved in the work with you to help you get through it. That's what Paul's talking about. And uh, that's kind of the way that the Spirit is portrayed throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself, he uses a Greek word to describe the Holy Spirit, paraclete. And what paraclete means is uh, it means to come alongside of or to comfort this is what Jesus says in John 15. He says, when the helper comes, that, that word paraclete there for helper, sometimes translated comforter, when he comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See, here's what Christians believe. We don't believe that God has kind of forgiven our sins and then kind of sent us on our way to try and figure it all out by our lonesome. What the Christian message is, is that God has saved us and ransomed us, and then he has given us the very spirit of God to help us walk through the struggles of this world, to share in our collective burden and pain. Ray Altland, the uh, pastor that I admire, says, The Holy Spirit is a gracious person who steps in and says to us, May I help you, and may I carry that burden with you. And what Paul tells us is that this spirit, he didn't just come walk alongside us, He actually prays for us. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we don't know what to pray for ourselves, God prays for us. Now I just want to pause for a second. Does that sound unusual to you, the way it does to me, that God prays for us? Isn't the way prayer supposed to work that we pray to him, that we kind of bring our lists and our our requests and our desires and our burdens and we kind of say, here you go, do something about it. Why would God pray for us Isn't that unusual? Well, if we think of prayers primarily this list that we're sending up to God, then yeah, it is unusual. It's strange. But what if prayer was much about presence than it is about lists? What if prayer wasn't about us asking for things but about resting in things, about reminding ourselves of things, about experiencing the love of God? Pastor Brian, uh, he he said this this week when we were kind of talking about this sermon, he says that the definition of prayer that he has is experiencing the love of God. What if the purpose of prayer is to be loved by God, to be present with him, to experience his love and his care? Now, the other thing about this, does it feel good to have the freedom to know that we don't always need to know what to pray? You ever been in one of those zones where you're like, I just don't know what to pray about this. I felt that way a little bit about Uvalde, right? Like, what do you, what do you pray for? What, what are the kind of things that you should chase? Do you say God reform things and change things? Do you say help us with mental health crises? What, what do you pray for in situations that are just unimaginable like that? Praise God that what Paul tells us is the spirit prays. That sometimes, you, you know what the most prayerful and holy thing you can do is? Is to go and sit with God and, and, and groan with him. Is to not necessarily have clever words and speeches But just to to be present with him and to feel what he feels and to feel the pain of others around you and to sit and let God speak that and pray that. Now, I've sat with a lot of people who've gone through a lot of suffering. And you know what people usually want when they're suffering and they're struggling? It's not explanations and, and clever answers. It's just they want someone to just be with them, to sit with them, to weep with them. Sometimes not even to talk at all, but to just sit silently in the room. God is so good that he knows that. God knows that what we really need is not explanations, it's not answers, as if to say that some kind of answer would make all the evil in the world make sense. It's to dwell with us, to sit with us, to weep with us. When was the last time that you let the Spirit of God minister his presence to your heart? To just sit quietly and rest with him. Just let silence hang and listen. I mentioned earlier when we were in our time of prayer, but I think one of the greatest problems in our society is we're always in such a rush. We've kind of got to get from A to B. We want to go, go, go. And so our prayer life, it kind of looks like that, right? Like we, five minutes in the morning, we'll pray about a few things and then kind of we're off. And God wants us to linger. He wants us to be an all day, continual prayer, presence, 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 to just be with Him. And you might have kind of felt a glimpse of that when you have been kind of in the presence of great beauty. Maybe you see a mountainside or a lake, and everything just freezes for a second. And you can kind of feel the stillness and the beauty of God. You can feel him present with you. Or maybe when you've gone through a moment of intense grief, and, and you've, you've lost the capacity to even talk about it. And right there, in that moment, you feel the aching and the groaning and the grief of God. Those are beautiful moments that as Christians, we shouldn't try and rush away from them. We shouldn't try and get rid of them because we don't, we don't like grief. We don't like being in those moments. Where we're like, I want to get out of this. I want to move on. I want to be away from grief. I want to be away from struggle. And I think this passage and this, the knowledge of who the Spirit is and what he does calls us to say, no, let's sit and be present and be still and let's listen to his voice. Let's let him minister God's presence to us because we are weak and we're not who we should be. We're frail and we struggle and we don't understand. And so the Spirit of God comes to still us, to quiet us, to steady us. And because of his work in us, Paul can give us the really good news of verse 28. And this is the verse that kind of gets quoted most often. One of the most quoted from Romans 8. And before we go into this and kind of unpack this, I want to give us an analogy to try and understand what Paul is about to say So if you've listened to me for any length of time, you know my best sermon illustrations come from either YouTube or TikTok when I'm scrolling through stuff. So I wanted to share with you a video of something I came across a couple weeks ago that I feel like captures what we're about to read so well. Let's take a look at this video. Those are all just regular dice, regular dice. that I, I looked it up, there's over 19,000 of those dice, and they're arranged perfectly, so essentially they become pixels in a picture. And all those dice create this image that I think you would agree at the end there, it's not just kind of a general image, it's pretty detailed. I mean, you can see the shadows on the face. Well, what we're about to read is... God explaining to us that the little details of our life all form together to create a picture. All of them come together. And and we might not be able to see them in the moment because we're so close to them. We might not be able to understand how the moments of our life fit together and what purpose they have. But what Paul's telling us is if we love God, if we seek God, then all the little details of our life are part of a plan. They're part of an, an organization that God is doing to create an image. So let's, let's go ahead and look at this. So the verse says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, again, very, very often quoted, but this verse, I think sometimes is very misunderstood and taken out of context, and we don't really understand what it means. So what I wanna do is I wanna break it down section by section, this little sentence, and understand what, what is Paul really saying? So first, he starts with, for those who love God. The first thing that, to understand is, this is not kind of a general statement about the world, Because I think we'd all agree, sometimes things don't work out for good a lot. What Paul is saying is, for those who love God, for those who are seeking God, then there is a redemptive purpose. There's a redemptive purpose. And what I want to say to challenge us as Christians is that this... What he doesn't say is for those who believe in God. What he says is for those who love God. Love is an action, it's a verb. It means that there is an active movement in our life in a certain direction. Now, I don't mean getting all right. I don't mean for perfect Christians, for those who love God, for those who obey everything, because no such Christian exists. Christians are broken, flawed people. We mess up all the time. What I mean is are we trying intentionally to point our lives towards God and His purposes? Are we seeking him? You know, Think about a, a plant that's in the shade. If I, if I plant a seed in the ground and then I just leave it in the shade, it's not going to grow. It has to be put in the sunlight. right? It has to be put in the area where it's going to receive the things it needs. If we put our lives in the presence of God, if we put our lives in the, in the light of his word, in his people, then there is a growth that is going to happen. A redemptive growth that happens in the moments of our lives. So the second thing he says is, for those who love God, all things, all things, not some things, not the nice things, not the pretty things, not even most things, all things work together. So that means even bad things, even terribly bad things. All things that happen in the life of a Christian have a redemptive purpose. Now, the first thing that this means is, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when bad things happen in our lives. If Paul is saying all things, then that means he expects hard, painful, difficult things to happen in our life. And one of the the most often ways that this verse is misused is it's kind of used as like the fairy tale dream come true verse. Where we say, well, all things are meant to be good. God's going to make everything good and it'll be nice and pretty. So if you're a Christian, then your life's going to be really good. That's not only untrue, it's drastically untrue. Uh, Talk to Jesus about how his life turned out and see if that's true for him, right? The life of Christians for the longest time in history was a struggle and painful. So if if this verse is meant to say life is meant to be good, then something's gone wrong in history because that's not how it turned out. And again, in our culture, we don't like pain, we don't like struggle, and so... We, we want to run away from this, right? Like we're part of the culture. Tim Keller, when he was talking about this, he says kind of American culture is like when things don't go right, we're going to sue, right? Someone's going to pay. But God is saying that he uses even pain in your life to get his work done. Now, this brings us to the third thing. All things work together for good. And here's what's important about this. What Paul is saying Is not that every bad thing that happens to you, you need to think of it as a good thing. What he's saying is the bad things will work together with the good things to accomplish good things. So one of the ways that Christians misuse this is we kind of we give each other very bad advice. And when something bad happens, we say, Well, everything happens for a reason, so God has brought this to teach you something. So this this loved member of your family that's died, or this suffering that you've gone through, God's trying to teach you a lesson, He's trying to do good. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying there are absolutely bad things in this world that are bad. There is no good in them, but God will bring good out of them, okay? So what Christians need to do is we need to be, again, kind of as we've already talked about, we need to be able to grieve truly bad things. We need to be able to not try and make bad things seem good because there are people who are in pain, and when we do that, when we, I've been at so many funerals where, uh, People have stood up and said at the funeral, Well, God just needed another angel. That's an example of that kind of twisted mindset that suggests, Oh, that this is actually a good thing. Like it's a, as if God was in heaven and being like, You know, there's not enough angels around here. Let's kill someone. Right? I mean, I see it outside and it's, it sounds awful, but sometimes we let these like kind of bad, twisted theologies come into our mind and we misunderstand things and it can be hurtful to people. I can promise you this that the person. Uh, who's at that funeral grieving the loss of someone, hearing something like that, it doesn't feel good to them. They in that moment need to be told, this is bad. It grieves God's heart. He's sad about this. He's not happy about your suffering. He's, he's not in heaven saying, well, good, I hope you learn a good lesson. God weeps and grieves and is broken, far more than any of us have ever been over the evil in this world. But God is so broken over it that he says, I'm going to twist this and reform this and I'm gonna bring something good out of this. You know what the greatest example of that is? Is Jesus Christ, an innocent man who was hung on a cross after being tortured and beaten and abused and lied about and God brought about the redemption of all creation through that. Another great example of this is, is Joseph in Genesis. You remember Joseph who was thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold as a slave into Egypt? And at the end of all that, God kind of raises him up. He becomes prime minister in Egypt, and there's a famine, and Joseph helps rescue the nation. And then his brothers come back, and he meets with them. And Joseph says something very important. He says, what you intended for evil, God has used for good. What Joseph did not say was, oh, it's okay that you threw me in the pit. That was good. See how it all turned out? Well, he says, no, you intended that for evil. It was evil. It was wrong. But God has used it to bring about good. So I want you to swallow that this morning and realize the pain and the burdens in your life, God grieves over it with you. He is not thrilled about it. He doesn't want to teach you some kind of twisted lesson. He wants to grieve with you and then he wants to bring good out of it. This is so important for us to learn because Romans 8.28 is giving us freedom to lament and hope. It's giving us freedom to say there are broken things in this world that truly are just wrong. It's just wrong. But there is a God who is going to bring about redemption, who's going to set things right. He's building a world where school shootings don't happen, where wars don't happen, where sickness and death is gone. Remember the story where Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead? I always tell this story at funerals because I think it's, it's so good. What we're told is that when Jesus went to the tomb, he weeps. But he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would he weep? Why does Jesus in that moment not say, hey, everybody, watch it. It's going to be great. Watch what I'm about to do. What he does is he goes and he breaks. And people say, look how much he loved Lazarus, that he's weeping for him. The reason why Jesus is weeping, because it was sad that Lazarus died. It doesn't matter that he's about to be raised. That death was sad. It was wrong. So the promise that God is giving us here is not that if you love, good, love God, bad things won't really happen. The promise is that God will take bad things and in totality, in the end of all things, he will bring good about. Uh, and another really great moment of this, I know I keep telling stories, but I just thought this was such a beautiful moment this week. Uh, our friend Jenny right, who's going through cancer treatments right now. She was, she was weaned off of steroids this week. And so she was in a ter- terrible amount of pain because her body was kind of reacclimating to not having that assistance. Uh, and she had a terrible pain in her knee. Well, they examined her knee and she, they found out that she had four blood clots in her leg. And so Jenny wrote this post. and It's, it's so beautiful. She was actually rejoicing in her pain because she was like, God used my pain to help the doctors find something that was way worse. God brought about something good. Now, can you imagine that? Being in agony, being in pain, and saying, thank you, God, that you let me suffer this. It was, she wasn't saying the pain is good, and I'm thankful that God is allowing me to suffer. She was saying, I'm so glad that God has used something that was bad to bring about something that was good. That's kind of the kind of man that I think God wants us to have. This is what Jonathan Edwards said about this. He says, A good man may look down upon all the whole army of worldly afflictions under his feet with a slight and a disregard and consider with himself and joy therein. However great they are and however numerous, let them all join forces together against him and put on their most rueful and dreadful habits. Bring all the light afflictions. He may triumph over them knowing this, that they are but for a moment. And that just shall only work out from a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And that although sorrow continue for a night, joy comes in the morning. Now, we've got just a little bit of time left. And we're going to try and tackle the hardest part of this passage. So bear with me. Because we can't talk about 28 without talking about 29 and 30. This is what it says. And you're going to be so mad at me that I've waited until right at the end to try and tackle this very complicated part. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Everyone understands that, right? That just makes sense. We can just, we can end. No. (laughs) This, This is a part of Christianity. I think that if you've been in a church for a while, you've come across words like predestination and they can make your head spin and think, well, what does this mean? What is, what is Paul really telling us here? Uh, so I want to I kind of set up some safety bars as we unpack it. And the first one is Paul's not trying to give the Romans a theology lesson, he's trying to comfort them in their suffering and their affliction. He's not talking about predestination and, and foreknowledge to kind of say, here's how I want you to think about God in his loftiness and his grandeur. That's, that's a part of it. But ultimately, the reason he's having this conversation is to say, I know you're suffering. I know there's persecutions in the church. I know that you're worried about your lives. I know you're struggling. And I want to remind you something about God that will bring you comfort. So that's why I want to talk about the comfort of sovereignty. Because when we talk about sovereignty, God intends it to be a comfort to our hearts and our souls. And the other bumper bar I want to put up is throughout the Bible, the, the Bible holds two things in tension. And those two things are that God is in supreme control of everything that happens, but that human beings are responsible for the decisions that we make in our life. If we stayed here for another three hours, I could not explain how those two things coexist to you. I went through seminary and I studied it and I thought about it. I don't know. And guess what? It's been talked about for 3,000 years and people still don't know. But I think we need to leave room for the fact that God is far above our understanding. I don't know how those things work together, but that doesn't mean that they don't. It means I don't know. Let me, let me think, get you to think about this. If you think it's a contradiction or a paradox for God to talk about predestination, but also say, but I want you to make good decisions. God's not like us, and he's the ground on, on which all created things stand the neurotransmitters in your brain that allow you to make decisions and create what we perceive as conscious thought he invented that it was his idea the whole concept of you having a free will was because he decided to give you one so we can start to see maybe a shadow or a glimmer of how somehow these two things work together so with that in mind let's go ahead let's read this this i want to again just kind of unpack this word by word really quickly because i know we're about to be out of time but First, he he says, for those whom he foreknew. And this is this Greek word, prognosko. And what it it means is, it doesn't just mean that God kind of looked out across time and had an idea of what would happen. It means that God intentionally chose to know us. That before you were born, before I was born, before all of creation was put together, God looked through the channel of time and said, I'm going to love these people. And when, when it talks about knowing, it's a little... A little kind of weird. But the word knowing is the same as when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. It's like the biblical know. Where it's saying that he's intimately involved with. He built a relationship with. He was close to. So God knows all the details of our life. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, there's nothing about me that God does not perfectly understand. I'm a riddle to myself, but I'm no riddle to him. God knows you better than you know you. He understands why you do the things you do. He understands the trauma and the brokenness. And so he's the best person to talk to. He knows your failings. He knows your sin. He knows your mess, your wounds. And he actively decided at the creation of the world to love you, to be devoted to you, to commit himself to you. Second word he uses predestined, the easiest one to understand. This is the one that makes us feel the most uncomfortable. But it's a word that we have to wrestle with because it's in scripture everywhere. Think about things that Jesus said. He says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, may he give it to you. And then in Ephesians 1.4, Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will, I think it's sufficient to say here that what predestination is about is it's about God being committed to make sure that His purposes are carried out in your life. He's committed to you. He has fixed your destination. He knows the end of your journey, and He's going to carry you along through it. God is resolved that He will not leave us or give up on us. He's going to come to us and He's going to carry us. And what's more, He's going to conform us to the image of His Son. He is going to change us into the likeness of Christ so that we would be faithful, generous, kind, merciful, and gracious as he is. So that we would become a courageous, uncrushable, beautiful people that make a lasting impact in his world and his creation. Third, we're called. God has brought us to a realization of his plan for us, of his foreknowledge, of his design for us. So what lays beneath your kind of your aching and your groaning is the groaning of the Spirit. What lays behind your sense of calling is God calling you, reaching out to you. If you are yearning for God, it's because He's yearning for you. For He justified us. He cleared out our debts. He dealt with the price of what it costs to set things right. He preordained from before the creation of the world to send His Son and to suffer for us and die for us. That's why Romans 8 begins with, there's no condemnation because we've been set free from the law. And fifth and most strange of all, he glorified us. Now he, he talks about this in present tense like he's already done this, or past tense even. But isn't that what we're all heading towards? You know what Paul's point is? is that It's so certain that God gets us from A to B that it's already, it might as well already have happened. That's how sad it is. And so all these words end up forming this chain of events and promises. And what God's really saying through Paul, this is why it's a comfort, is he's saying God is going to make sure he gets you to where you need to be. If you love him, if you seek him, if you trust him, he will carry you through the broken moments. He will get you through your burdens and your pain. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is trying to give us ground to stand on when life is hard, when it's a struggle. He's trying to remind us that bad things turn out for good, that good things can never be lost, and that the best things are yet to come. All this shouldn't deter us from living from him. It should encourage us to set our eyes on him and chase him and trust him. Because there's a plan for your life, and it's not a chaotic collection of moments, some of good, some of bad. It's an organized plan of redemption. So if you are here today and you're struggling with the burden of your life, come to Jesus. He can calm the storm and he can hold you steady. If you are here and you are lost and can't find direction, come to Jesus. He knows the end for which you were made and he's going to get you there. If you are here and you are afraid that you've made a mess and that you've shipwrecked your life, come to Jesus, the great redeemer who knows how to rebuild you and set you on course. If you're here today and you feel alone, come to Jesus who gives you his indwelling spirit to be present with you in every moment, who calls your name. That's what Paul's offering to the church and that's what he's offering to us. The Christian hope is that there is a God who can set all things right, who is present with us and who loves us and is going to get us to the end of the race. Nothing else in this world is going to offer you that kind of hope. So we can celebrate this sovereign God, this gracious God, because he has chosen us, because he is pursuing us, because he is devoted to us, and because he's going to work out his purposes in our life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great sovereignty. Thank you for your great grace in our life. Thank you for giving us your spirit, for giving us your promises, for being committed and devoted to us. God... There's a lot of complicated things in here that we don't understand, but we know that you want to bring us comfort. We know that you want us to trust you, to surrender to you. So God, I ask that we would do that. I ask, Lord, that we would trust that you are the God who foreknew us, who's called to us. Lord, we believe that you are the God who works all things together for our good. Lord, let us pursue you with everything we've got. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.